you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Maniculum Podcast. I am Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University, specializing in medievalism, as you probably have guessed by now. We are weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt. Well, yeah, that's true. Medieval studies. Technically, medievalism is imitation medieval stuff. Yeah, that's true. I know that. I can't even get through my damn introduction. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we teach you how to take weird medieval stuff and turn it into TTRPG material. And occasionally, we're unnecessarily pedantic, like I just was. We're always unnecessarily pedantic. It comes with the territory. Today, we have a wonderful guest with us, Allie A. Alvis, the book historian herself. But before we jump into that, just a reminder that we have a fantastic growing Discord community. So if you are interested in getting involved, seeing how we actually bring this stuff together, trade D&D, TTRPG ideas, and trade source notes and articles, scholastic things, all of that good stuff. And also memes. We also have all the memes. Please check out our Discord. We also have our other social media and we have a Patreon. So if you are so inclined to support the show and keep our pedantic asses caffeinated, please feel free to support on Patreon. Alrighty. So today, as I said, we have Ali Alvis, otherwise known as Book Historia on Twitter. And she is a textual book historian who works as a rare book cataloger at antiquarian book dealer Type Punch Matrix. They have a degree in linguistics from the University of Kansas, a master's in the science of book history from the University of Edinburgh, and a master's of science at the University of Glasgow in information management. That is a mouthful of degrees. And Allie has also worked at the Smithsonian and has a litany of publications, articles, and other podcasts that we will link to in our show notes and an Etsy. So we'll also link to that because that is so cool. Allie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I didn't know all that. I'm a bit intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please. No, (laughs) I'm the least, (laughs) least intimidating person you will probably have on. It's so nice to be here. And I'm so excited to be talking to you guys. And yeah, super hype. Yeah. So today we're going a little bit off book, quite literally, as you will, and not talking about a particular medieval manuscript or tale or otherwise. And we're just basically going to be asking Allie about what they do and dig into some ways that she sees textual history and gaming kind of come together. And they've got a cool, a few really cool projects that I'm excited to dig into. So just to start and jump into this straight off, What is your focus of study for our listeners and why get into it in the first place? Well, first of all, apologies if my cat Jeremy wants to contribute. Uh, His his focus of study is meows. (laughs) Essential, essential work. Extremely important to, to the scholarship. But yes, my focus of study is book history, um, the material culture of the book. And within that, I have 30,000 little smaller focuses, including sort of the representation of books in pop culture, 
also the bookbinding of Douglas Cockrell and Son, who were really instrumental in developing the field of book conservation, just all sorts of different things, how social media can be used to communicate rare books. I just feel like I'm picking up a project sort of everywhere I turn. There's so many ways that you can see rare books in different things. And I just, I want to grab all of them. I'm I'm like a magpie of rare books. Incredible. I didn't even consider the study of bookbinding, but now that I think about it, that's like the first and foremost thing you want to think about when you're doing conservation work. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. <laughs> I'll try not to get off on a tangent on them right now. But it's really fascinating the kind of information that you can get from book bindings, like not even looking at the text, but just the outside of books can tell you so much. Um, and I got distracted by explaining my cat's scholarly interests, who is continuing to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> this is a pet friendly show. We do enjoy it. He's an orange cat with a single brain cell. Always with the orange ones. <laughs> But yes, what I do at my job is looking at things like book bindings and describing rare books in such a way that it makes them interesting and appealing and hopefully makes people want to buy them. It's a lot of storytelling in addition to your quote unquote classic bibliographic description. So sure, we describe the period of the binding, how many pages there are, the plates, if there's like ownership inscriptions or anything like that. But then we take that information and make it into a story. And that that's really my favorite part of what I do. So what kind of things does the book binding tell you? Because I, I do follow like a few like old books accounts and conservationist accounts. And it seems that most of what the binding tells them is the last person who worked on this was a hack. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> so... Yeah, actually, what got me into this is looking at illuminated manuscripts at the University of Edinburgh and saying, holy crap, who bound this? Why can I not open it? Certainly, in the Middle Ages, people were able to open this and read it. And it's these overly ambitious, overly enthusiastic, a lot of 19th century, 18th century folks who are taking these medieval manuscripts and slapping them in bindings that they consider to be glorifying the manuscript in, in their own way. So not too concerned with the structure, just that they look pretty on the outside. And scholars are struggling with that to this day. And Douglas Cockrell and Son really wanted to make that practice stop. So they, they really wanted to make the books usable and readable and were interested in conserving them in sympathetic ways rather than making them look new, however you would define that. Different definitions of new throughout the centuries. But when you have like a contemporary bookbinding, and by contemporary, I mean old, contemporary to the, the book itself, um, you can learn so much about when exactly the book was bound after publication, because sometimes books float around unbound for a while before making it to the bookbinder. Um, you can also learn about where the book was bound. If it's bound, in, for example, in pigskin, it's probably German, just because Germans ate a lot of sausages. And just the, the different consumption of animals led to different prevalences of binding materials. So it is kind of funny that, like, well, obviously Germans have books bound in pigskin. But, like, when you really think about it, it's so practical because you wouldn't raise a pig or a cow or something just to be a book. 
like the meat and the the sustenance that you can get from these animals is really the primary thing that you want to have these animals around for. But also, they make good books, so <laughs> <laughs> might as well use it. Yeah. Does you that extend to the inside hog. of the book, <laughs> so to speak? I see what you did. <laughs> can you make pig parchment? Is that a thing? You could, but it would look weird. I think. I don't know if either of you follow. Pergamina is is a parchment maker up in New York, and they have an Instagram. And sometimes they make weird parchment from stuff, including birds. And the pores on bird Whoa. skin, because of the feathers, are so big that when you actually stretch it out and scrape it, the parchment is full of holes, just naturally occurring holes. And not, not like the kind of holes that you see in medieval manuscripts where there might have been a bug bite on a cow and when you stretch it out, all of a sudden it, it expands. But like a regular pattern of polka dot, basically, holes in the parchment. So it's like not at all Crazy. usable, <laughs> but it looks cool. I gotta check that out. I'm not even on Instagram, but I want to see it. <laughs> that feels like it could be used in an art exhibit or something. Right? Yeah, I know. I think it is like a really cool artistic medium that, that would be fascinating. But I think pigskin would have a similar problem with the pores. And also it's just a more supple hide. So I don't think it would stretch and become thin as nicely because it's just kind of, it's soft. And uh, things like cow and even goat and sheep, those kind of lend themselves more to stretching. Very fair. So what brought you to the point in your life when you said, I'm going to learn about pigskin being used as bookbinding? Like what brought you down this path? <laughs> Clearly you have a lot of history in, in this area. <laughs> it is weird. It's, you know, like you said, I did linguistics in my undergrad. And through that, I was looking at a lot of facsimiles of Old English and Middle English. I was fascinated by the development of the English language. And when I was looking for postgraduate studies, I came upon the University of Edinburgh History of the Book program. And I was also looking at publishing programs at the same time and sort of considering doing a historical linguistics master's, but also I didn't want to do fieldwork for the rest of my life. So fair enough. So I shot my shot at Edinburgh and got in. And it was basically as soon as I entered the reading room for the first time and saw one of my instructors with an illuminated manuscript, I was like, oh, <laughs> and everything fell into this place. Is it. Yeah. So it, it took me a while to get into the reading room. But once I got there, it, it all made sense. Makes Yeah, that's oh, that's fantastic. I had a very similar experience. The first time I walked into Trinity College Dublin uh. as an undergrad. And I went there for I think it was like a creative writing study abroad thing. And that trip itself was miserable. I got pneumonia oh, and, no. and was left in one of the dorms for most of it. But when I walked into that long room, which is that big library, yes. that the Jedi library is based off of. Yeah. And then up into the reading room, uh, it was, I just, I was blown away. And so years later, uh, I think it was like three days before the deadline of academic, like submissions or admissions, whatever. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll shoot my shot, whatever. I'm not going to get in. And and then, you know, it was all over from, from then on. But it's, it's amazing how sometimes you just, you find the right thing. And the moment you see that gilding, that color, that ink, it's like, cool, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm done. This is it. I'm TAing a rare books class this semester, and yesterday was the as because I'm I'm working for the libraries this year. That's, that's the book. That's the class they're teaching. 
I don't actually know much about rare books. I'm hoping to learn. But the, the reason I bring it up is because yesterday was the first day of class and on like their intro, I think it, I think it was on like the syllabus was a picture of the library at Trinity College Dublin. And both yep. the professors were like, yeah, that's on my bucket list. I'm going to go there. I'm like, Zoe's been there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I- the wonderful pretentiousness that I had when I lifted up that red, you know, the little red velvet, you know, draw to go back into the, the secret quarters. Because that's where the reading room is, is up behind there. And the sheer joy I got out of doing that, particularly with my witch's hat on in October. Oh my gosh. Mmm. Goals. Amazing. A couple of times people got mad at me, like tours were like, y- you can't go back there. Usually always the Americans, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, enough about that, but just so, so much fun. If you're wondering, listeners, about whether to do your degree in rare books, then definitely do so you can come see these old, old books yes. and go into the secret places. Well, one of the wonderful things about places like Trinity College Dublin or like the Beinecke Library at Yale And even the Library of Congress is, even if you're not a reader or not a rare book specialist, you can still go to these places. And oftentimes they have really nice displays. I know both the Beinecke and the Library of Congress have Gutenberg Bibles out that you can see. And it doesn't take too much to get registered as a reader in a lot of these libraries. Some of them have more stringent requirements than others including the British Library, which has many, many, many treasures, but can be difficult sometimes from an international person registering as a reader standpoint. But everybody has different standards. But even if you're not a rare book specialist, you can register as a reader. The librarians would just prefer if you know what you want to look at before coming in rather than saying, let me see a pretty old book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 100%. Yeah, life hack for those of you who don't want to go into academia, but do want to check out the rare books. Many, many, many times you can go online, go through the catalog, find something that is of interest to you, and ask a librarian for help. Sometimes figuring out what those manuscript codes mean is very, very difficult. But like librarians, and I'm sure, Allie, you'll back me up here, love to help people find what they're looking for. Heck yeah. So if you request it, you can go in. They will probably shadow you as you as you take, you know, take a look at it because you're not a student at the school. But they will absolutely let you look at it and probably talk your ear off about it. So I did that at the National Library of Malta. I just Ooh. showed up, flashed my student ID, got in. And they let me take a look at whatever I wanted. Yeah, some libraries are super chill, especially if they have agreements with like a sister university or whatever. It's like you can just go to the other special collections and you're automatically a reader there. Yeah. Okay, shall we get to our list of interesting questions? So what are the biggest misconceptions about your job and about book history in general? And to kind of couple that together, why is book history even important? And our listeners will probably, you know, generally enjoy book history anyway. But in your words, why is it important for geekdom, for fandom and popular culture? Why does that matter other than just preserving old stuff is a good idea? I mean, that's a big reason, but (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it is. Also, old stuff is cool. And I I think that that is something that is often glossed over in an academic setting. 
academia is very concerned about classifying and quantifying and figuring out hard numbers about stuff. But there's a certain joy that you get from looking at medieval manuscripts and from looking at old books that is integral to the experience of looking at books and always has been. That's why medieval manuscripts look the way they do to to sort of evoke this awe in the the viewer. And even though it's a different kind of awe now, it's it's less religious and more just sort of generally amazed for some. I mean, for some, it still can be a religious experience coming down through all of the centuries. And I think that that is an important part of remembering why books have been so culturally relevant for so long in the West. It's just they are sticky as objects in a way that other objects aren't, particularly because you look at a book from the 16th century in the same way you would look at a book from yesterday. They haven't changed that much in terms of functionality. Although if they're literally sticky, you probably brought something into the yeah. library. <laughs> yeah, please, <laughs> please wash and dry your hands before entering the library. We don't want our books to be literally sticky. <laughs> but they just, they stick in your mind and culturally. And they have had such cultural significance over the centuries as religious objects that they're really central in that way, too. But I think a lot of misconceptions about libraries and rare book professionals in general one of the biggest ones is, oh, so you read all day? And <laughs> <laughs> My perception is you're kind of like a forensic analyst in terms of taking care of these books. You're getting into the biology might be the right, the wrong word, I guess chemistry of how to take care of, of the parchment of these texts, what kind of environment you're storing them in. Mm. To me, there's a lot more math involved than <laughs> than reading. <laughs> yeah, especially on the conservation side. Book conservators are chemists. These are not your average run-of-the-mill people who just walk in and say, like, oh, it's a little humid in here. I think you need to turn the humidity down. Like, there are numbers, there are formulas, there are chemicals that they mix up to to remove that stickiness from books that has been on there for <laughs> centuries. And yeah, book conservators are incredible. But yeah, librarians, it is a fairly analytical field, a lot of research. And so in a way, kind of we read all day, but not in the way that people think. Like we're not sitting back in a wingback chair, sipping a, a tea and reading our favorite Jane Austen first edition signed by Jane Austen or whatever. Um, no, no, no. Don't, don't say that. No. I know. I'm we're sorry. We're trying to get I'm, them I'm... into the field. <laughs> I'm dispelling the illusion. I mean, we did just have the uh, Inside My Favorite Manuscript people on, and they also said, like, no, we don't read the manuscripts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're not worried about what's actually in the text. Mm -hmm. Was that Someone's Dot? Someone's already transcribed the text. It was Dot, yeah. yeah. I love Dot. Dot is, like, my idol. She does so much cool stuff. And, like, when I talked to her on Inside My Favorite Manuscripts... I felt so validated that, like, she, my idol, also doesn't read the manuscripts. <laughs> I felt like such an imposter because my paleography is lacking sometimes that I just, I don't deep dive into the Latin. It's it's just sort of getting a general sense of what's going on here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you've got a whole library to take care of. Exactly, you know, you yeah. Can't, you can't exactly do a deep dive into into those books. Mm. Okay, so you don't read it's, it's all someone day. someone else's job to do yeah. that. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> 
Yeah, that kind of ties into the other thing is that libraries, especially research libraries, aren't necessarily quiet places. They're places where researchers come in and are asking questions. And even if it's not, you know, loud in a way that you can hear, there's just a lot of work going on all the time between the the reference questions, the getting books from the stacks, reshelving them, writing up pull slips, just all sorts of different things going on. It's it's not really a place where one rests on one's laurels. And also there's a lot of interpersonal exchanges going on. There's a lot of communication, interfacing with researchers, trying to figure out what they need, because sometimes researchers don't know what they need. They're relying on you as a steward of the collection to say like, oh, okay, you're interested in 18th century animal husbandry. We have a strong collection of that on horses, or we don't really have anything like that, but we have these pieces of literature that mention that topic. A librarian and a rare book professional comes at these topics from all different sides that a researcher might not quite clock because it's it's very easy to get focused on your subject and get blinders on occasionally. But that is, is what librarians exist to help with. My boss was recently complaining to me about the like conceptions people have about people in her job, and specifically that every time there's like an article in a popular publication or like a news outlet that has anything to do with archives, they always describe the library and the archives as being like dusty and semi-abandoned. Yep. Like, that's um, not at all what it's like. No. The dusty archives is such a pet peeve of library professionals of like, we work really hard to keep this stuff not dusty. <laughs> like that is one of our primary focuses. And if anything's moldy, something's gone terribly exactly. wrong. <laughs> yeah, this is a problem. <laughs> That segues perfectly into my next question, which is how can book history inform TTRPGs or our conceptions of history and fantasy in TTRPGs? And I feel like that is a fantastic way. Like, sure, you can have an old musty book in a dungeon, but, you know, the wizard's library is probably going to be in pretty pristine condition. So what else can we bring forward? Yeah, I think that that really hits the nail on the head of different books for different situations that, you know, the the tome that a wizard carries on them at all times, that's obviously going to have some patches and some vernacular repairs, maybe some weird Frankenstein stitching on the spine to sort of keep everything together. And that's where you can get books with a lot of personality, which is kind of my favorite type of book a book that has been just literally read to pieces and then stuck back together in the most fascinating ways. I kind of collect books like that. And they're often school books because, you know, kids are notoriously rough with their books, but their parents couldn't necessarily afford to buy them a new book. So you kind of had to fix up what you got and keep on going. And I think that that translates really nicely to a quote unquote field book of an adventurer or someone who's out and about and who doesn't necessarily have access to a bookbinder or a librarian or somebody who would be able to repair their treasured spell book in such a way that it, it would look new. They just kind of have to do what they can. And I mean, one of the most vivid examples of a fantasy library research setting to me has always been Gandalf in Fellowship mm. of the Ring. 
when he's like pouring over all of these shuffled papers, but also is smoking a pipe, mm-hmm. <laughs> which kind of gives me hives. Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, wizards got to do what wizards got to do. And like you, you imagine that sort of environment in a lesser explored type of area, maybe a, a castle where record keeping is sort of gone by the wayside. Maybe they've fallen on hard times and can't really afford to keep track of the old library, or they've sold off all the old valuable tomes, but they have the the loose papers sitting around and who knows what's in there. And there might be the solution to this, this problem that you're having. Uh, go for it. But you get to fantasy universities, things like that. Like you said, a, a wizard's library, those would obviously be more well-kept because they have the, the means to do so. And that's something that also extends to real life. You obviously get these these instances of tiny little underfunded libraries that are doing the very best that they can, but can't describe everything because they don't have the money to hire a full-time cataloger. And then you have places that are incredibly well-funded, but are still struggling under years and years of backlog. So there's still, quote-unquote, discoveries to be made among the things that are already there. Um, It's it's really a fascinating Ouroboros of information. (laughs) And even well-funded universities will often not fund their libraries. Purdue's a pretty big university. The library I work in has one cataloger. Mm Yep, yep. That is a familiar story. (laughs) (laughs) An unfortunate one. Mm -hmm. One thing that I want to emphasize and bring forward is the fact that this isn't like Google, where you can, you know, search for something that you're looking for, and all of a sudden it pops up and you're like, okay, cool, I just need manuscript 1150 XYZ, whatever. And a lot of the reason for that is because First off, someone has to know that the book exists and it might not, you know, you got a backlog, you got the stacks. No one might even know that it's there. So that's the first problem. The second problem that you can run into is it might be cataloged and they might know what it is, but they don't know what's in it. And that can be very, very interesting. Like if a book is damaged, that needs to be cataloged and and, uh, notes need to be kept on that. Or for me, my primary interest in manuscripts is marginalia. And typically, typically people don't catalog the, you know, what the marginalia is. They just say like, some marginalia, done, cool. And I'm over here like, yes, but what is the marginalia? What's going on here? And that can be an issue or somebody might not have read the whole thing. And so then you as a researcher are sitting down, usually at your computer or physically having to go to the library, pick out the book that catalogs the books because it hasn't been digitized yet, which is its own problem, sitting down, flipping through it, just trying to find keywords that you're looking for. There's not a search function there. You have to flip through the pages and hopefully guess Pray there's an index. <laughs> yeah, there right? might not be. <laughs> there probably isn't. And on top of that, manuscripts carry different types of texts within them. So, you know, take, for instance, the manuscript where Beowulf is. There's a whole bunch of different types of texts with Beowulf. And so, again, how do you catalog that? How do you go through and write down, okay, this manuscript has this text, this text, this text, and that text? You have to search through all of that. So you, as a researcher, must absolutely rely on these catalogers, uh, rely on these librarians. 
So I just want to emphasize that as someone who learned how to do that and now will forever lament the fact that libraries don't have enough funding. And then to, to tie this more back into D&D, yeah, the next time your players go to the library, I want you to make them do that. Go through that process. Roll for it, baby. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> Roll for reference question. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Because all, like, I don't know, it feels like so often people go into the library and they're like, one book on ancient tomes, please. And they get what they're looking for and they find the prophecy and it didn't take a roll. That whole scenario is like one of the one of the dreams of many medievalists I know is to somehow get the funding to go around to different archives and look at what exactly is this one that just says manuscript Latin. Yeah. Maybe it's oh, yeah. something new, but like there's no <laughs> there's no funding for that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Also, I did have a question. Since we've mentioned like binding many things into one manuscript, Incidentally, I've heard it argued pretty convincingly the Beowulf manuscript is supposed to be a book of monsters, and that's the theme. But since we've mentioned binding a lot of things into one manuscript and, like, heavily repaired books, could you tell us about some of your favorite books with personality? Oh, man. So many of my favorites are, like, here on my shelves. And I could, like, show you them on, on the Zoom that we have. <laughs> Please. I mean, if you can do that without, like, something going wrong with them. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're willing to sit tight for one second, I can go grab yeah, it. for sure. Um, and then I can send you I pictures that be. you can include with um, whatever else. Perfect. Oh, shoot. I have, like, would love two that. that I really want to show you because they're both horrible and I love them. Um, I'll be right back. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. We'll have cat time in the... I have my stack of horrible Bibles to show you. <laughs> A stack of horrible Bibles, yes. my favorite words. That's hysterical. That's a good phrase. Okay, so first of all, this is not a Bible. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I'm talking vernacular repairs. <laughs> yeah. I, this, wow. for the listeners, is a leather-bound book with what looks like suturing to the spine. Like Frankenstein-level, not exactly skilled sewing. It's fairly even, all things considered. But both of the front and back covers of this book have come off once upon a time, and someone literally sewed them back on with very <laughs> thick kind of like twine. Shoelaces. Yeah, yeah. Twine, shoelace. Yeah. And it's also got all of these horrible stains on it. Like, what is this? I don't even know. And this is actually, it was like a guide to... Um, I can't remember what state it was, but if you look at the foredge, you can see a difference between like this part of the book and this part of the mm -hmm. book. So what's going on here? And forage for our listeners is the outside part of the book. Uh, there's a lot of what looks like water staining on one half and the other part of it looks pretty well kept, straight lined, tight together still. Since we're an audio medium, we should probably <laughs> emphasize that that was foredge, not forage like finding. Yes, acorns. thank you. So why why is this book in two halves? I mentioned that it was a state guide. I think it was a state guide for the 1870s or something, and it went out of date, but it was still a functional book. So the owner decided to start using it as a scrapbook. <gasps> and that is what oh. the wiggly pages are. They're from the glue that the owner used to actually paste stuff into the book over the extant text. Everything from little poems to illustrations from other publications, usually magazines, 
and the book was not made to have a whole bunch of other paper in it. So the boards came off and that owner sewed them back on. And so that's the kind of story that you can tell with just looking at the physical nature of the book. And that's not even getting into the content of the poems, which are largely religious, but they also talk about I can't, it was in the death of a president. I can't remember which one. Oh, wow. But it it really just all contextualizes the book and the history that it exists in. If we're talking late 19th century, I'm betting Garfield. I think you're right. I think it is Garfield. But I'm imagining a, a battered wizard's tome with this sort of suturing on it, this non-specialist but earnest (laughs) effort (laughs) at repairing yeah i was just thinking that would be a perfect thing to put in a game yeah yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. and what popped into my mind is particularly for that is making your players roll to see what state their books are in at the end of combat for instance or oh that would be after swimming and then having to go visit your local bookbinder to fix it or have to make a roll to fix it yourself Mm. swimming is definitely a good idea they are are way too free at jumping into the water they're carrying right (laughs) give me a system for how well your books are kept (laughs) i think that's applicable to libraries too Because it might be that the papers that you want to look at are just so deteriorated and you can't quite read them. So if you roll a 15 or above, like, you can read it just fine. But if you roll below, then the Iron Gall ink has corroded half of the page and you can't quite make out what it says. Yeah. It's not a matter of just stay for a couple of days to read the whole thing. It's a matter of you can't actually read this text. There's nothing there anymore. Yeah. I'm actually doing a project where that's like a, a kind of theme, but not like a academic project, a like D&D project. I'm participating in this thing called Dungeon 23, where over the course of 2023, you make like a giant D&D dungeon. And I'm doing one based on the marginalia of the Lutrell Psalter. Oh, fabulous! And the like premise I've got is like, this used to be a facility where a bunch of semi-unhinged wizards did their experiments, and one of the things you keep coming across is, there are books here, but they've fallen apart, and I've, I've created a couple NPCs who are like, interested in repairing them, but they're having difficulty with the, like, getting all the material together, and sometimes some of it's just missing, and like, it's a whole thing. So I think there's, I think there is potential in including that kind of thing in games. Definitely. And if you're looking for that, listeners, you can find it on our blog. Yes, back. I keep derailing. We should. No, you're good. You're good. We've got more books. Yeah, this is relevant. Yeah, now the two horrible Bibles, (laughs) which are kind of siblings. This is a 1615, what's called a breaches Bible. And it has to do with the translation of, I think, what Adam and Eve wore. I think when something is translated to breaches and it was one of the earlier English translations of the Bible. It's again, a a leather bound book. It's bigger than the last one, not quite coffee table book size, but sort of between hardcover novel and coffee table book. And it has these nice metal elements to it on the corners and in the center. Um, And these are called bosses. They're to protect the binding from scraping against shelves or tables or whatever. It's pretty, but it's also protective. Is that word from analogy from the boss of a shield? Yes, exactly the same sort of thing. That never occurred to me, actually. This, this <laughs> is why talking to other medievalists is, is good and exciting. <laughs> that never occurred to me. I'll have to look into that. 
Yes, so bosses. Something about this Bible, though, is that when you look at it from this angle, it looks like a normal book. And I'm sort of holding it with the spine towards the camera. And now I am turning it with the foredge towards the camera. And uh, this book was once described as simultaneously trying to eat itself and spit itself out. Uh, The pages are coming out of this book in such a way that it looks like a wedge. But they're still mostly attached to the spine, which is shaped like a V. So this isn't how books are supposed to look. This is just a very, 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 very well-loved book. Obviously, through almost 500 years of reading and uh, marking up, and I have all these little bookmarks in it where there are interesting pieces of marginalia. Um, I not, was not ask what those were. Yeah, not those great grotesques or anything, but owner names and yeah. notes about different passages and things like that. Oh, so So cool. it's one of my favorites. It's just fantastic. It reminds me of the Monster Book of Monsters from Harry Potter, if mm-hmm. um, if our listeners are familiar with that. It's got that sort of vibe to it. Not that we it. endorse J.K. Rowling in any Yeah. Way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find touchstones here. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think of like what an analog to that would be. I've, I've been trying to think of that myself because Harry Potter is still such a cultural touchstone for people yeah. that like... You can say, oh, yeah, the Harry Potter Monster Book of Monsters, and people just know that. And I don't know anything else that's like that. It would be great to sort of workshop Harry Potter alternatives. Yeah, find something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the Lord of the Rings, but I feel like that's not quite as applicable to moderns. Because it's set in in a a mythologized past Mm, rather than in 90s London. Yeah, and the books aren't quite as fantastical. Like, Tolkien is much more sympathetic obviously as a historian with his portrayal of quote-unquote medieval type stuff and ancient Mm -hmm. books and things like that. So like he knows a lot about what he's talking about based on his direct experiences with this stuff, whereas other fantasy writers who haven't necessarily spent hours in a reading room or any time in a reading room kind of see this stuff via sometimes other fantasy media, and it's like this game of telephone of this is what an old book looks like, right? And that's when you get like these wild things like the the Monster Book of Monsters and it's it's a very sort of exciting developmental thing in in fantasy. I remember a, a misunderstanding of old books in a YA series I read back in the day. I think it was the Belgariad or something where they had like an important old book that was called the Something Codex, mm-hmm. but it was a scroll. Like old book and not that it was a format issue. Oh dear. Oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> but it sounds so cool. Yeah. I've heard that with manuscript as sort of a catch-all term for yeah. old book. Um, parchment. Pe- yeah, yeah, parchment. I think in what is it, Daggerfall, the Elder Scrolls game, the uh when you find a map. They call it like a well-drawn parchment, like a parchment. And I'm like, what is a parchment, my dude? Todd Howard. Come on. I think this was before Todd Howard's time. But <laughs> I think it's also become an accepted thing to blame Todd Howard for a lot, though. So we may as well. I, yeah. Yeah. Stub your oh, toe. Gosh. Todd Howard. Oh, gosh. See, and and this is where, like, I as a game dev slash writer slash medievalist, I like, I sit there and I'm like, 
do I want to be pedantic in my own writing or can I be creative? And it, it gets in the way of my own enjoyment of other fantasy media because I'm sitting there like, that's not the right use of that word when it's a really creative use of something and I'm, I can't get over it because I'm such a pedantic mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. There's There's a give and take to be done for sure. Yeah. I think that my eventual, like, my my slowly growing love of books that have been used half to death, you know, I entered the rare book world interested in, like, the preservation of illuminated manuscripts and the importance of making them be exactly the same way as they were when they were new. And just sort of over the course of my career, I've fallen more and more in love with yucky books. But I think that that has made me more forgiving of when books are depicted in uh, questionable ways <laughs> yeah. in, in different media. <laughs> and I, I think that that's a good segue into the final book, which remember the wedge Bible thing that I showed you with the bosses on the cover. Yeah, I think I've seen your posts about that one on social media. Yeah, you, <laughs> I have definitely posted about that beast, but this one is a sort of interpretation of that. This is not a bejeweled binding, although this is like a little bejeweled cross stuck to the cover of this leather-bound book. The cross is from the 60s. Someone superglued this to this 1600s Bible. Oh no, what? why? Wow. Why would you do because that? Because they thought that it deserved it. And that just <laughs> really makes me so happy. They just, they thought that this is a precious book. This needs to look precious. And I've seen pictures of treasure bindings and I can kind of do that. So I'll just super glue this cross under the cover of this book. And it's, it's basically the same thing, right? I mean, to be fair, like that is a very like medieval thing to do. Like people in medieval times would make exactly that decision. It's only in, in our modern era where we're like, no, you don't, don't glue things to old books. I know, I just, I adore this because it's so innocently ostentatious. (laughs) Like, it's just naively ostentatious, I suppose, is a better description. I like that the jewels are a little plastic, you know? You know, like, they're very clearly plastic. I think a couple of them might be glass, but it's not even probably a very expensive piece of costume jewelry, but it's... It's glued dead center on the cover of this book to sort of give it an air of glamour or awe or something that you you should give it reverence because it has this stone on it. And I just, I think that that is such a great example of the way people understand old books versus yeah. the way specialists understand old books. There's, there's <laughs> the surface, what you see when you go into the morgan and you see all of their treasure bindings and then there's the the scholarship behind that of like why are they doing this when were these put on these books because they weren't always put on the books right when they were created the books are sort of a a constantly evolving concept culturally and so they get bound disbound rebound in lots of different ways. Sometimes that involves putting them in sumptuous treasure bindings. Sometimes that involves completely disbinding them and just having them sitting around as a stack of pages for centuries. But people have been reinterpreting books since there have been books. And that's why you get these, this like 
um, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to name drop, but like a sort of pentiment or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or um, a uh, what's it? Who's it? Palimpsest. Like all yes. books are palimpsests yep. in some ways. Of there was the the original thing, quote unquote. And then there are all these layers added on top of it as it changes hands, as it um, gets conserved, as bindings change, as people add notes. And it's just this accretion of interesting cultural touchstones. And yeah, so I, I just I love well-loved old books for that reason. And I think that that really translates very well into a fantasy setting. I agree. Before we move on to Zoe's next question, I do want to, to make sure we don't let this slip away. What interesting marginalia have you found in your self-consuming Bible? Okay, well. <laughs> um, so there's <laughs> the, the dangerous questions, Mac. <laughs> yeah, there's so-and-so owned this book. Uh, I think it's Naomi Richardson or Richards. I would have to open it and I don't really want to while sitting on the couch. But it's interesting because she has like Naomi Richards, her book on a couple different pages, but also a sort of highlighting of the passages about a biblical Naomi, which I thought was just really oh, sweet. Oh, that's very cute. And then there are other owners who've written their names in there. I don't know if it's descendants of Naomi, sort of weird puzzle like scribbles that I feel like might be initials of some sort, but they're not immediately evident. Unfortunately, there's not like a lot of great notes saying like, well, I had this for dinner, <laughs> <laughs> which I have found in a, a really great Pliny Incunable, which is just like, it's full of notes about like things that are related to Pliny's Naturalis Historia, but also like, I went to the bath today. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really great. Oh, it's like I got bored while I was reading. And it was in a Benedictine monastery. So it's just full of monks talking to each other in the margins, almost like monks crossing things out and saying like, no, that's not the German translation of this. I love those. Yes, it's fantastic. But I think things, there are also things in the margins that are not necessarily marginalia, which I also find fascinating. Things like on the, the tamer side of things, pressed flowers or old bookmarks, ribbons, things like that. But also terrible things like fingernails. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they've probably been in there for a few centuries. It was it was startling the first time I found fingernails in a book. And I have <laughs> since found it in both of those terrible Bibles that I showed you. I don't know what people are doing cutting their fingernails over the Bible. But you also often find squished bugs, which is a delight. <laughs> Spiders and flies and mosquitoes yeah, and yep. moths. And I scared the crap out of myself looking at one of these old Bibles one time because there was a smashed bug in there. And I sort of tilted the book up to look at it better. And it was not completely adhered to the page Whoa. anymore. And oh, it like no. slid at me. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> it was very <It's> exciting. <laughs> I used to work at a used bookstore and... Thankfully, the the worst thing we ever found inside a book was a condom, a one still in the wrapper. But it had been in there uh, for yeah, like that's, 30 years. That's good. Years. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Another thing before we move on, because I just realized that we may be leaving some of our readers behind if they're not also medievalists. Could you explain what incunabula, incunabulae are and possibly palimpsests? I don't know how common that word is either. 
Yeah, I, I feel like palimpsest might also have other meanings outside the realm of books. Um, but incunabula is from the Latin incunable. Incunabula is just the plural. And that generally refers to when print technology was in the cradle. That's what the, the Latin incunable means, cradle. So this is from around the Gutenberg movable type innovations of the 1450s to 1500 or 1501, depending on who you ask. So an incunable is a book that's printed in that little window in like basically the first 50 years of movable type in the West, where they're still trying to straighten stuff out. They're still trying to figure out what they can and can't print in terms of technologically both figuring out how woodcuts could go into the text, into the bed of the press with the type, what can be colored in the the press and what needs to be hand colored. Lots and lots of incunables have hand finishing initials added in by hand in color. The illustrations are hand colored. So it's it's really trying to make the book look modern and moving away slowly from the manuscript tradition. Although it was not a light switch. It was not like, oh, there's movable type now, everybody. We're doing this now. It was definitely a slow process. And manuscripts were being made into the 1600s as like a prestige medium. So, yeah, there's just a lot of overlap. What was the other one? Palimpsest. Palimpsest. Palimpsest, yep. Yes. So a palimpsest, I'm not sure what the Latin origin of that is. I assume palim means something. My Latin is not excellent. But a palimpsest is basically referring to a page that has once had writing on it, but has been scraped or otherwise erased and then written over with something else. It's Greek, actually, from palin, meaning again, and pestos, meaning rub smooth. So rub smooth again. Bingo! So yeah, <laughs> that. Thank you, Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> So if you speak Greek, then this is this is redundant. You already got that from the word. But yeah, it is it is a thing that is scraped clean and then written over. You may have heard of the Archimedes palimpsest. There are works that only survive in palimpsest form that you can't really see very well unless you're looking at it through a, a certain kind of imaging with different kinds of contrast because when somebody writes over this stuff that's already been erased, not only has it been erased, but now it's under other stuff. So it's it's kind of a, a bibliographical mystery that you can <laughs> uncover sometimes. You know, I did not realize that incunable was the correct mm -hmm. singular. I swear I've heard people use incunabula as a singular, but I wonder if that's like a die-dice thing where people just extrapolate. Yeah, yeah it, it is definitely one of those things. I've heard incunabula for singular, but I've also heard incunables for plural and incunable as singular. So it's whatever floats your boat, I think. I'm sure <laughs> older bibliographers would get very angry about me saying that. But I think as long as people understand what you're saying, you're fine. That feels like one of those things where anybody who's in academia and works with this stuff is chill no matter what you say, and anyone outside of that is going to make it their hill to die on. Yep. Mm -hmm. Like octopi versus octopuses. Like technically yep. the correct is octopuses, octopuses. Because, because octopus is from Greek and Greek, it doesn't... not the Latin. Yeah, so plurals are not 
it's not us to i it's it's octopuses and uh, yeah so i okay, i will not die on, <laughs> on the plural of octopuses yeah, if anyone tries, you can always escalate and tell them that really it should be octopodes but like no mm. one's gonna say that so just let people say what they want Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with all of this wonderful history laid out and with our listeners hopefully scribbling down TTRPG ideas as we speak, what are some of the best practices for accurately and respectfully incorporating historical elements into a D&D game? And how can book historians help TTRPG players and game masters better understand the cultural, historical context and settings and scenarios? That they're role playing in that sort of bookish or just historical context. Like, what's your take on that in general? And then we can jump into the more library stuff later. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to remember that if you're playing D&D and you're talking about books, it's a fairly low stakes thing to talk about. And if you quote unquote mess up, it's fine. It's you're not committing any crime if you don't know everything about Incunabula and about what parts would be hand-colored and what parts would be printed, and you're not describing that absolutely perfectly. Like, it's it's one thing if there's somebody who's in your party who, like, knows that stuff and can say, like, well, actually, if you're t- talking about this, it actually looks like that. But I, I think it's important to not think of books as this scary thing that only specialists know about, but that, you know, be aware that there are resources out there that you can look at and specialists who you can ask if you do have questions. I mean, there there are plenty of things that are more controversial in D&D that are a bit more spicy. <laughs> that <laughs> if you talk about them wrong, like you can cause actual real harm to your party or to public if you're doing a, a streaming thing, if you talk about them insensitively. And if you're talking about books, like the worst thing that can happen is you're going to get some rare book specialist being like, well, actually, uh, and that <laughs> you're not going to, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. Yeah. The worst that can happen is you'll be involuntarily educated. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, and if you, if you are that person in a party, chill out, have some grace <laughs> with your GM, with whoever's saying this stuff, like. You know, don't don't be like I was when I was younger and be a pedantic about this stuff. Like, give people grace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's an important thing to remember about any sort of learning is that everybody starts from zero. Nobody is coming to anything with expertise built in already. Everybody is learning as they go. I mean, I didn't know diddly squat about rare books for most of my life. And now I know a whole bunch. But I started from zero and, you know, you can work up from there. But if you do want to incorporate rare books into your RPG adventure in ways that are more true to life, there are lots of great social media posts out there of people handling books, which really gives you a sense of how books move, their texture, their weight, so you can better describe their presence within your story. Okay. I need you to handle this debate for once and for all, please. Should you or should you not wear gloves when handling books? I was just thinking that. Like, I know know what the official answer is, but I I feel we should definitely address it. Because, like, I have had people come up to me and, like, because I'll bring it up for something or other, or I'll be handling an old book or whatever, and people will get on me about this. So I will let the book historian expert explain this. And certainly, if, if you don't know, please take note. 
But yeah, this, this is something that people have a lot of misconceptions about. So, so cutting to the chase, library best practice is clean, dry hands when handling old books with an asterisk. For most old books, including illuminated manuscripts, including incunabula, including 20th century modern firsts, clean, dry hands are the way to go. If you're wearing any kind of gloves, even quote-unquote surgical gloves, it reduces your dexterity and your sense of touch. So if you're turning a page, because books are such movable objects, you really need to have that sense of touch so you don't accidentally tear something. And cotton gloves, that, that seems obvious. You can't really feel through cotton gloves. They have all those little fibers that stick to stuff. They lift dirt off pages and transfer it to other pages. But something that I've been hearing on various, uh, well, mostly Instagram, honestly, are people saying like, well, tell that to doctors who wear rubber gloves to operate on oh, you. Lord. And it's like, that's different. People, people are not books. There are different- <laughs> You're not going to give a book sepsis. No, yeah, there, there are different considerations going on for when a doctor is wrist deep in your abdomen <laughs> versus when you are trying to gently turn a very thin page. You're also not trying to preserve what's on the body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's a completely different reason for wearing gloves. So, yes, surgical gloves, you have better tactility, but it's still not as good as your bare hands. And it's it, nitrile is usually the material that surgical gloves are made out of. And that kind of has a natural stickiness, a kind of natural tackiness that can catch on pages in, in a similar way to how cotton gloves do, but it's less obvious. So you can just very easily like rub your finger across a page and accidentally tear it because the glove just sticks to it. So generally, library best practice is clean, dry hands. Often when you go to a special collections, they will ask you to wash your hands before going into the reading room. Sometimes they will have a sink there. There are a couple of notable exceptions, one of which is photographic material. Usually photographs, you'll be using either um, your classic white cotton or nitrile gloves because photographs are produced with such a chemistry intense process that any sort of grease or moisture or anything can really screw up the photographic artifact. So don't be surprised if you're dealing with 19th century collections if you end up wearing gloves. Another really important one is if the book has toxic material on or in it. So the Poison Book Project at Winterthur has been studying a lot of 19th century books with arsenic green pigment in their cloth bindings. And first of all, don't freak out if you have a green book on your shelf probably doesn't have arsenic in it. If you are concerned, just wash your hands after handling it. Don't lick it. Uh, these are not books that <laughs> these are not books that will kill you unless you ingest them. And you're generally not ingesting books, so you're probably fine. So don't go throwing out all your green books. So the Poison Book Project is looking to sort of figure out what books have arsenic in them. In, in an industrial sense, but also some books from the 16th and 17th centuries have bindings with arsenic pigment on them. That is another avenue of my research interests is it's called Virgo green. And yep. speaking of shields, that is also a pigment that was used on shields because it's just a nice green. <laughs> it's orpiment yellow. 
Next thing you know, you're poisoning your enemy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, it does double yeah. duty. You just have to get them to lick your shield. Exactly. New magic yeah, item. <laughs> but it it's a mix of orpiment, which is yellow. It's arsenic sulfide. And usually uh, an organic blue, like blue, I'm trying to, indigo or something, to, to make a nice green. And it's not as in your face as some of the industrial greens that you get later on in the 19th century that just are so green that they are truly sickly looking but it's it's a functional green and it's cheapish to make so you do see that not only on books and shields but in illuminated manuscripts i think the book of kells might have virgo in it i can't recall off the top of my head but yeah i i can't remember or it might have been the lindisfarne gospels maybe both so if you're handling a book that is known to have a harmful material in it, you will probably be supplied with disposable nitrile gloves. And that is more to protect you than the book, because, you know, it's just you don't want to eat that stuff by accident. <laughs> Even if you're very careful about washing your hands and everything, sometimes it just you touch your face, whatever. Right, right. Um, and when you're wearing gloves, you're much more aware of your hands and it makes you less likely to touch things that you shouldn't be touching with arsenic fingers. So, <laughs> but by and large, don't wear gloves in libraries. Yep. You know, Orpiment would be a good name for an NPC. Or a baby if anyone would. out there is looking for one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, free NPC yeah. name. I think it's a nice girl's name. Very nice, yeah. <laughs> uh, and caveat here, a little asterisk, is if you go visit a library and they do hand you gloves, don't put up a fight. Go with what the librarian is saying, mm -hmm. even if, you know, you think they're wrong. Respect the institution you're in. Exactly. I do know of some institutions that still have a blanket glove policy, and that's for a variety of reasons, not least that they can't, they don't have the resources to sort of vet everyone's material to see what needs gloves and what doesn't. So trust the professional expertise. Librarians develop standards with lots of thought, and it's not just out of the blue. There are lots of, of different decisions that go into creating these standards so yes listen to your life this is something that comes up uh, several times in, in i want to say christopher de hamill's book meetings with remarkable manuscripts <laughs> where he, go he goes to a bunch of different like special collections libraries and checks out the manuscripts and a number of them make him wear gloves and some of them don't and some of them have very strict policies and on the other end of the scale i think one offered him some chocolates to have while he was reading I don't know that wow. I've read that chapter. I've read about half of that book and I stopped for some reason. I think I just got busy, but that's fascinating. <laughs> that one stuck in my head. I think it was the when I think it was a library in Russia or something where they just had a very different view on things. Wow. I, I appreciate that in some ways and am horrified about that in others. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so all of this wonderful context laid out for us. How would you like to see a library portrayed in a TTRPG campaign of your choice? What would be your ultimate like fantasy? Whether whether that's, you know, like a a hobbit hole full of books on herbs or the wizard's beautiful spiral staircase with just books all the way up. What would you want to see in a TTRPG campaign? I think that as much as we talked about the real life concerns of lack of resources and things like that, 
that if I were to encounter a library in D&D or some other TTRPG setting, I would want it to be like the Unseen Library in Discworld or something like that, where it's just straight up fantastical of books that have wings and are flitting from shelf to shelf. And, you know, the chained books that are chained for your protection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Forget this realism crap. Yeah. (laughs) I really like the incorporation of real life book history, but made fantastic. So um, in Magic the Gathering, you often see little floating chained books in the background of library scenes. And it's implied that the chains aren't really like a security system like they are in real life book history. Many libraries were chained. In fact, most libraries were chained in Europe really up until the 1600s. And that was for security because books were so valuable. People didn't want others walking out with them. But now the chains are reinterpreted as this really fantastic thing of they're just keeping the books from floating away because these are the floating books and you need something to hold them down. That's delightful. (laughs) I've not noticed that. But I also (laughs) haven't bought any magic cards for like 10 years. So maybe I'm just missing out. (laughs) I'll have to go through my partner's collection now, see what I can find. No, it just makes me so happy that there are these little touches like that that are clearly based on real life things, but then just sort of spun out from there. And same with like little spiral staircases. Zoe, like from the long room, there are little spiral staircases in there. Like those exist. Those, Those are common in libraries of a certain age and it's really fun and cool to see them. So like... Library architecture, I think, is something that can also be incorporated in a fun way to a fantasy setting. Things like the little spiral staircases and the grand hallways and shelves that move and things like that. I like the idea of restricted sections being somehow like physically hard to get to. Mm-hmm. Of like, this mm-hmm. is where the really fragile stuff is, and we don't <laughs> want just anybody using this. So you have to cast a flying spell and also be able to recite this poem backwards and do whatever (laughs) i just i like the literal restricted idea and yeah i i think just variety of books is also something that i would like to see in in my ideal fantasy library of not just fabulous treasure bindings but yucky books like i have and (laughs) absolutely and rolls and scrolls. Yeah, give me a yucky book historian who's just got their own little corner that nobody else wants to go to. I want that NPC. Yes. Like, you guys, you guys, I found a new spider in here. <laughs> just exactly. crazy. And he's he, they're so excited. <laughs> this spider has been extinct for 200 years and I found a specimen. There's so much possibility there. I think it would be delightful to have someone who, who's like doing a scholarly study on spiders found in books. Oh, incredible. That, that would be fantastic. See, there's there's a quest idea right there. Like, oh, I need you to go into this decrepit, you know, castle, dungeon, whatever, to go and get this one book. Oh, is it really valuable? No, no, no. There's just a spider den in there. And I've heard there's a really, really good spider <laughs> just stuck in between these two pages. <laughs> and I need that book. Mm-hmm. there's gotta or, be some eggs yeah or i mean go full jurassic park and say like well somebody smashed a mosquito in this book three centuries ago and there's traces of this person's blood in it that you need mm-hmm. to be able to perform this ritual that only people of this certain bloodline can do uh, yeah perfect. that's actually really good perfect 
<laughs> All right. Any other quest ideas? Anything else? popping up. I just want to say, since Ali already mentioned the Unseen University, there's always L-Space. The interdimensional connection between all libraries, which is definitely non-fictional, not just something right. very yeah. Up. yeah. I think another good one is the um, the library in the Fade from Dragon Age. I think that's fun. Oh, Even though yes. it's, it's all sort of fallen down and weird because the Fade is weird. But I like the idea of those sort of spiritual librarians that are sort of everywhere and in one place at the yep. same time. Yeah. You astral plane yourself to your library. Exactly. That's yeah. a cool idea. Mm -hmm. No matter where you are in the world, you always have your research with you. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of, of anything else about... I, I think it would be fun to do like a sort of mini quest of... Your wizard needs to write down a new spell, but doesn't have any ink and needs to collect galls or whatever to, to mm -hmm. make their own ink. I like the materials aspect, and I know that that can be kind of annoyingly fiddly for some players. It's something we've actually talked about writing rules for before because we're fascinated by it. And mm. if you are interested in more of that, listeners, and you missed our episode with Lucas, a real-life medieval monk can check out that episode he's not a real medieval what? monk he's a real life medieval monk look <laughs> let me have this that's how we titled it essentially is a conversation with a medieval monk because he creates all of his manuscripts uh and does all he well he creates all of the ink gets real parchment does all these beautiful beautiful illustrations illuminations so if you're interested in the creation of ink and that good stuff check out that episode but yeah that that's a fantastic idea being able to create that ink or get that paper from somewhere. Another idea that I had was finding uh, or like a quest that the party is being sent on to discover the provenance of a book. Ah, yeah. Provenance being where that book came from, what its history is. And I'm not talking about like, oh, the history of how this book was written. I'm talking about the history of the book itself. Where did mm -hmm. this book travel? Who, Who owned, owned it? it? Yeah. yeah. All that good <laughs> Jinx. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know there was this fascinating, I think it was Newton's library. Yeah. So somebody recently bought a book, some collector, and it had a, a book plate in it. And he could see this sort of shadow of another book plate below the, the on top of it book plate. And it turned out that it was Sir Isaac Newton's own copy of one of his works. And <laughs> it was just so freaking cool. Why would you cover that book plate up? Put your book plate next to it, not on top. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, like, Fine Books and Collections wrote a story about this, I think, about a year ago in the winter. But it's it's really a, a fascinating happenstance. And I think that that would be cool of, like, there's there's this initial you see what you see, but below that there are other things hiding. Yeah. And I think one more thing that would be fun, I think more as a comedic beat than really a quest of any sort is if you have your party go into the library and they're looking for like a depiction of this fantastic beast of you know a moon dragon or whatever and they they find an illustration of it they find the illustration that they're looking for and it looks like this and it has these great long horns and you know a tail that's shaped like a club and then they actually go out to find where this book says that the great moon dragon lives doesn't look like that at all <laughs> <laughs> yes 
Yes. Or it looks vaguely like that. Whereas the, the illustration had huge curving horns. The actual one has these like little stubby curly guys yep. on the top yep. of their head. And, you know, I just, I love the, the things that get lost in early modern illustrations. And it's something that you see a lot in marginalia of, you know, this looks like something that exists, but not exactly and you even get that in early natural history texts, things like the Albrechtier rhino, where you look at this image that is clearly a rhino, but it's not really a rhino. It looks like a rhino, but it's there's something off. Is that the one that kind of looks like it's wearing armor? Exactly, yeah. It looks oh, like a knight. Yeah. yeah, and so there's like this imposition of preconceived notions onto these extant animals or it's an issue of these sailors described this terrible beast that came upon them in the middle of the sea and it, it shot water out of its face and it was the craziest thing and then you hear that story secondhand as an artist and you gotta work with what you got <laughs> and so <laughs> you have this weird screwed up looking whale that Really, if you compared it to a real life whale, that's there are some similarities, but it's really not that. And I think that that would be a fun sort of reveal of like, this is it, the great moon dragon, and it's actually this big. And yes. <laughs> Teeny little guy. <laughs> yeah. One of the egregious cases of that is uh, something we actually talked about with Dot is the medieval scorpions, where none of them actually yes! look anything like scorpions. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite version of this actually is King Arthur's questing beast, oh. which is actually, it's a giraffe, but you mm -hmm. can clearly tell that like they described it in a really accurate sort of way. It's like, oh, it's got, it's got the long head and neck of a snake and it's got like the, it's got like spots on it and it's got the body of like a horse, but the tail of like a lion and whatever. And these depictions of this animal are so weird. It's so monstrous. It's like a weird chimera. And then when you start to put it together, you look at it and you're like, head up, head and neck of a snake. That's that's a giraffe. That's a giraffe. And it's so close, but so far removed from what the animal actually looks like. It's so fun. Mm -hmm. I saw this fabulous Arabic manuscript at um, a collection in Dublin. I'm blanking on the name. Marsh's Library? No, not Marsh's. Chester Beatty. The yes, Chester yep. Beatty Library in Dublin um, has a fantastic collection of Arabic manuscripts. And in one of them, it's a sort of, I, I don't remember if it was a fully natural history treatise, but it had a little bit about North and South America and the animals that you can find there. And one of the illustrations was this funny looking duck with horns and like, <laughs> looked like a little blanket on it. And it was supposed to be an armadillo. <laughs> and it was just like oh my gosh i kind of get it because armadillos have that longish snout they have the yeah. really pointy ears they have that sort of blankety looking blankety looking back and you know i don't know how it became a biped but <laughs> not sure where that part came from but it just it brought me so much joy and i would love to get a tattoo of it it's just it's adorable Oh, that's so I think fun. that would be a fun way to generate new monsters for a, a TTRPG is to basically play telephone Pictionary and describe uh -huh. a real animal then have someone draw it yeah. and have someone describe that drawing and just keep going around. And when it gets back to you, you have a new monster. Mm -hmm. There you go. Easy. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Okay, so we should 
get sort of close to wrapping it up now. But I wanted to give you some space, Allie, to uh, talk about either your experience of Pentiment and dig into that more if you so desire, and or talk about your project with Magic the Gathering, because I took a look at that on your blog and was just blown away. And I think it's a beautiful example of how you can use textual history in a modern context. So either one, both, whatever you want to do, the floor is totally yours. If yeah, I think, um, like, talking about ideal incorporation of book history into popular culture and games and stuff like that, I think Pentiment nails it in a way that uh, is just, like, really, I, I don't even have an adjective for it. I'm I'm looking <laughs> for something that's, like, delightful and amazing and like it really honors the the book in a way that is really great to see that the team put in so much work to develop this game especially visually i know that the writing had a lot of beats about different books and things like that as well but just speaking as as someone who started playing the game based solely on how the book opened in that first yep. teaser and yeah, how yeah. the book block shifted when the cover opened. I was sold immediately. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God, they've looked at books. Yes. <laughs> it goes beyond that sense of telephone that we were talking about earlier of, you know, oh, this is what an old book looks like because I've seen old books in other pieces of media. Therefore, there you go. But the Pentiment team actually dug in and went back to the source material and brought it forward in a way that is really unique. Remediation is a really good word that I like a lot, where it's like this reinterpretation of media sort of ad nauseum. It's the Little Nas X sneakers that have blood in them that used medieval manuscripts as marketing tools. Oh, Lord. Fashion collections that print text on their clothing because it looks cool, but they don't really know what it says because it's in Latin. So there's like this concept of that kind of remediation. And then there's what Pentiment does, which is this sort of closer remediation that's almost not. That yeah. it's just like a recreation of history and sort of, I'm again, speaking especially in, in a visual sense, the way that the character designs really emulate woodcuts and illuminations and the way that younger characters are portrayed more as woodcuts and older characters are portrayed more as illumination, symbolizing the the change from the manuscript tradition to the print tradition. And they're just all these teeny tiny little nods that I get as a book historian and just yep. have me hooting and hollering, <laughs> but that when looked at sort of I, I often miss the forest for the trees here, but when you're looking at the forest, you also get a good view of book history. And it's a great introduction to that aesthetic in ways that you don't really get in other pieces of media. Even even historical media, like mm -hmm. Assassin's Creed, I mean, they, they're entirely yes. focused on history, mm -hmm. but... It's not focused on history. If you wonder, mm -hmm. you know, if you take my meaning there, like the, the game is itself focused on what the game is doing and what the story is trying to portray. And it's set in a time period. And mm -hmm. for instance, like the rendering of Notre Dame is so detailed that mm -hmm. they can help recreate the church based off of that rendering that they did. Mm -hmm. And that's incredible. But 
where's that line between the history and the fantasy? Mm-hmm. So it's it's so great to hear you hear you say that about Pentiment because that was one of my great joys in working on it. And this is just my opinion that it wasn't as much medievalism as the term in, is in remaking medieval history, even though it's technically early modern, I'll let it slide. <laughs> anyway, it's we're not trying to remake medieval history in that fantasy sense of, oh, there's a damsel, she's in distress, Arthurian tale, take Game of Thronesy, if you will, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It's very much like, hey, let's go back to the source material. And for me, that's what sold me on the project was, okay, cool, these are people who actually give a shit and want to take a look at that and want to go back to the back to its roots. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been amazing for me to as both a medievalist and a game dev to see people like you who have made this their entire lives say hey hey this game got it right so for me like it's a great accomplishment sure as a game dev to have put this out there but i never expected a game like this to come out even before i got into game dev so to be able to serve and also represent that sort of academic space and academic community in this way has been just a joy to me so hearing you say all of this about it just makes me very happy (laughs) no i could go on about it like between talking to you and talking to josh it's just like clear the degree of research that the team did is just phenomenal Josh was talking about, I can't remember what the game term is. Like, is it subsurface scattering of, it's like a lighting effect that, um, yeah, he compared it to like shining a flashlight in your mouth and like the light coming out of your cheeks. And he was talking about that in relation to wanting to incorporate that into the pages of the book to sort of express the translucency of parchment. And I was just like, (laughs) thank you like i don't understand the technical aspect of this at all but you're paying so close attention and like to to look at the translucency of parchment and say like hey that's cool why don't we try to incorporate that somehow like it's just it makes me so happy (laughs) because like that's a really physical it's a part of the physical experience of looking at books that you sometimes don't get if you're looking at them as a digitized book. Um, and there are plenty of uses for digitized books, but you lose out on that that physical aspect. One aspect of which is the different qualities of parchment, because you can have really thick sort of clumsy parchment, and then you get these really fine manuscripts where the pages you can see through and going between the pages, turning the pages and seeing the images and the text sort of in preview before you turn the page. Yeah. Or that bleed through. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. And even though I don't think that really made it into the final game to hear that it was considered was just really emblematic of how much research and care went into it. And I could like go on about this a lot and I need to write (laughs) an article about it. I have like the the intro that I was trying to shop around to see if anybody would publish it. And I nobody bit when the game was fresh out. So I think I'll just write it for my blog. But yeah, it's just I love that game. It's beautiful. Congratulations. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's yeah, the whole like, I mean, what a dream project for for someone Mm. like me to work on, you know, did you want to talk about your magic project? 
Because if you do, I, I want to hear I feel like we're running so long. It's, like, I do. We're totally chill with it. As long as you have time and you're comfortable, if you want to wrap it up, we can wrap it up. No, I'll I'll touch on it some because I think it really brings together a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. And it's it's kind of a project that I would like to expand to other media properties. But what I'm doing right now is sort of looking closely at various pieces of card art in uh, the Magic the Gathering game for their representation of books. And this right now is taking the form of a very big spreadsheet of um, <laughs> different cards with books in them, whether they are part of the gameplay or just sort of set pieces and trying to figure out what is happening here in a broad sense of the concept and not symbolism, but sort of cultural weight of books, what they say when they're included in a piece of card art. And a lot of what we were talking about, these beautiful treasure bindings or these really old beat up tomes, what can be communicated with that visual appearance and the sort of, again, like what we were talking about, the idea that people think old books look the way they do because they've seen them in fantasy settings. Yeah. So this third degree of removal from actually looking at a book from the 16th century yet portraying a book that looks like it might be from the 16th century in a different dimension. You know, it's it's these reflections of reflections of reflections. And there's a great blog post out there about what's called dirtbag medievalism <laughs> by Sarah Cook. And she classifies or describes dirtbag medievalism as a sort of earnest and bombastic meta-medievalism that isn't really concerned with historical accuracy as much as it is with creating a vibe, basically. <laughs> and it's it's just like, yeah, that's it. So I'm really exploring, uh, the working name is Dirtbag Book History, because it's it's that same concept of they're not really trying to communicate that this is a, a 16th century book versus this is a 19th century book. They just want to have a old book and have that do all the talking. I, I don't want to call it dirtbag book history, but I, I'm workshopping names. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, but that that's basically what I'm looking at in Magic the Gathering, like how, why these books look the way they do. And like the Pentiment team did, sort of going back to the source material. Right. Or what I think is the source material. Yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> actually looking at these books with like crazy metal fittings and chains and books that look like spell books like herbals and alchemical works and things like that and trying to to find the path between the 15th century alchemical work and the magic card from 2023 and figuring out what the steps are along the way <laughs> That is so fascinating to me. Like, that's something that I would never even consider. Because as someone who sits in and engages with that sort of dirtbag medieval vibe, as a consumer, I'm just looking at it, like in Dragon Age, for instance, and I'm like, yeah, this is a vaguely medieval vibe. I yeah. like it. <laughs> and I'm not thinking about it. Like, I don't have my academic hat on. Because in some cases that ruins my enjoyment or I don't want to or I'm tired and I want to think about that stuff or like it doesn't mm -hmm. matter versus, you know, looking at it from that academic standpoint of how did we even get here? 
Mm-hmm. So that's a fascinating, fascinating study to me. And we'll definitely link that down in the show notes for folks. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, is there a place that we and or our listeners can see what you're doing with these magic cards? Or hasn't that not, has that not been like put up anywhere yet? Yeah, so I do have a blog post about it on my website, which is just bookhistoria.com. And you can find that in the blog section. And that's the first real project that I did on it for the Books on Screen conference, I think back in 2021. I also spoke about it at a symposium virtually at the Getty. What was that called? I cannot remember what it was called, but it's on YouTube on, I think it's the, the Getty's channel. Oh, it was for their really great exhibit about like pop culture medievalism. Was that last year? Uh, yeah, it was like late last year. That's so it, funny. Because that, that's when really the Pentiment team went to the Getty. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I know Josh said that like after the pandemic kind of cooled down a little bit, you were all finally able to like go yep. to a museum and look at stuff. And that's, that would be a fun group to look at old books with, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So um, there's that. And then I'm very active on Twitter. I haven't done any of my Magic the Gathering threads recently, but I've been trying to do threads that take a deeper dive on single cards or pairs of cards that have books in them. Hashtag is MTGBookHist if you want to look at old threads that I've done. I need to start doing that again. And then for sort of general book history stuff, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel where I have my series of bite-sized book history. It's sort of seven to nine minute videos on various bibliographic topics, things like miniature books and medieval marginalia and chained books and I'm going to release a new season coming up. So stay tuned for that. But I am just extremely online. So if you <laughs> if you look up Book Historia... You are there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll try and put some links in the notes for everyone. Yeah. Yes, we Yeah, I think there's a, there's a Book Historia or something in The Legend of Zelda also. So sometimes when you Google Book Historia, it's like Zelda and also Allie. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's good company to be in. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us and coming on and getting geeky with us about about books. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. It's it's hard to geek out with people about books sometimes. (laughs) It is. Well, you've you've found the right crowd and the right audience. So you are always welcome on whenever you have something you want to rant about. I hope our audience found it interesting. I certainly did. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you did too. Alrighty, thank you everyone for listening and definitely please, please, please check out all of Ali's fantastic stuff in the show notes below and we will see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. 